family at the movies in honor of fast, 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 fast. What cinema's most memorable non-biological and non-Toretto family? I'm Matt Patches, and there's only one answer to this for me. That would be Nick Morton, Amenet, Dr. Jekyll, Invisible Man, Frankenstein's Monster, and the rest of the Prodigium from the Dark Universe. The Dark Universe, the dark universe. Of, course, of course. Hey, it's me, Dave, the, the Seven. Yeah, yeah, they're the fair family. I'm going uh, with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They were brothers. They had a rat father, no mother, but, you know. Are April. they non-biological brothers? Uh, I mean, we don't know. They were pet store turtles that fell down the sewer at the same time. So probably, I mean, genetically, possibly brothers, but uh, we don't know that for sure. Good uh, investigation. Um, huh. I am David Ehrlich. And I guess out of, <laughs> when I think of found family in recent years, I guess my mind immediately goes to shoplifters. But that's such an un- un- fun answer. But my... I guess my next answer isn't particularly fun either, which is almost famous. I don't know. There's something about something about a fan found, found family inherent to a band. That's kind of what that movie is going for. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, number 354. It's Pandemic 66 for the week of Wednesday, June 23rd. And on that day in 1989, Tim Burton's Batman premiered. And right. So good. Right Right now, yeah, Michael Keaton's playing that same Batman somewhere on the set of the Machete's Flash movies. Not exactly. It might not be the same Batman. A Batman. Michael Keaton is Bat. Playing Batman again. Yes. This this one definitely goes down on camera. I I regret already asking this question, (laughs) but in what movie is he playing with Batman? Uh, The The Machete's. Andy Machete and his uh, producer sister, they're uh, making the Flash movie. The Flash. See, David, the Flash is based on Flashpoint. Which is opening is, up the DC universe to the multiverse. Is Ezra Klein? Ezra Klein. Ezra Klein <laughs> is the Flash. <laughs> Playing the Flash. Yeah, the takes come is, at light speed. Is is Ezra Miller playing the Flash? Yes, he is. Yes. Mm. Despite minor controversy, I guess. Right. There yeah, was. I, I looked the into this over really the pandemic. Like Ezra Miller. Because I couldn't remember what the Ezra Miller controversy was, and apparently he, he choked punched a someone. fan. Oh, choked! Yeah. Like punched slash choked a fan in Iceland, um, and there was video of it that was not great, but also no. there it was. It was definitely lacking for context, but uh, it, hard. Uh, you know, save it being a complete joke that the victim was in on. Not great. Um, Anyway, but anyway, uh, he is the star of the Flash, <laughs> the is. new movie that brings Batman back. He's, he's going to meet, Mike, yeah, he's going to meet Michael Keaton's Batman. He's going to meet uh, the 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 Ben, ben Affleck, Bruce Bat Wayne. Fleck. Yeah, there's a Supergirl whose uh, costume leaked on the internet this week. She looks like a loser. Well, that's because she doesn't sleek. have the cape. There's a dead. There's a digital cape patches. Yeah, but she, her her bodysuit is like one very sleek. Oh yeah, it's based outfit. off a design that I also like from the comics. It's good. 
Uh, anyway, all of this is not what the podcast is about. Katie isn't here. She's on vacation and recently had a birthday. Happy birthday, Katie. Happy birthday, Katie. Happy birthday, Katie. We, we all planned on saying happy birthday to you this way instead of saying it to you on your actual birthday. Um, and while you weren't here, because uh, it was a big surprise that we definitely planned that. Mm-hmm. I like how you just walked <laughs> back the, the, the project. <laughs> We made a little bit of progress and then you just like walk it back. So awesome. Um, but That's also good news for Katie. Uh, we have a review apparently, so we don't need to hear about the Royals this week. David, uh, let's see what we we are talking about. Uh, we have a review from Pat, <clears throat> excuse me, Patch Zappis, who says mm. fight to live another day. Many film and pop culture podcasts are content with playing it safe and always try to keep the atmosphere quiet and tepid. In other words, they boring, but not fighting in the war room. They engage and push each other around. But, you know, it's all in good fun. Whether it's David taking the piss out of the new Marvel Endeavor or Patches dropping a take so hot, it's radioactive, radioactive, radioactive. There's always dragons. something happening. <laughs> yes, there's always something happening to keep the pot stirring. Dave Seven is the podcast, in parentheses, not so, in close parentheses, secret weapon. And Katie is the heart that keeps the whole thing beating. I love you all, even when you fight. Nay, especially when you fight. Keep up the good work. Sorry, keep up the good one. Zach from Burbank, California. Thanks, Zach. Go sit in on a taping of The Late Late Show with James Corden for us or whatever it is that people do in Burbank. <laughs> Horrible. Why would you do that? Why you know, that I got to say, the, like, the first, all the late night hosts have been super loopy for the pandemic in those first like, 10 to 15 minutes of the show. It's really James unstructured your, and playful. Your anchor. No, I mean, it's a little, even for me, it was a little late uh, to keep up with that on a nightly basis, but I appreciate the the vibe that they were going for in that segment. I hope that all the late night shows are able to maintain some of that energy once they get studio audiences back, but they probably won't. Thanks for leaving us a review, Zach from Burbank. For the rest of you, please go on iTunes, Fighting in the War Room, leave us a review, we'll read it on the show. It's great fun all around. It saves us from having to hear Katie Rich talk ad nauseum about the most boring she promises esoterica about the royal family not the fun stuff just the shit you don't care about maybe talking about the dc multiverse will be our backup here because even i was straining to describe the flash plot (laughs) well you're up next patches you're up next for punishment after we hear about some royals i'll study up maybe we won't even have to sub in another punishment because maybe we'll get some reviews leave a review let's get on with the show All right, for our opening segment tonight, we're going to talk about a brand new Pixar film that has once again been damned to the underworld of Disney Plus instead of <laughs> hitting theaters this week. It's called Luca. It is the featured directorial debut, I believe, of Enrico Casarosa, who has been a very long time uh, Pixar employee. I think he's a storyboarder. He he directed um, La Luna, that short film. Mm. For, uh, Pixar, but that was ages ago now. That was in 2011. Um, he also, I think, co-directed or at least was very a big part of Piper. There, uh, this movie that I don't know if you guys have seen, but it's like super photo real bird on a beach. Mm. 
Um, oh yeah, exact opposite of what he winds up doing here. In I Luca, want to say I played before Finding Dory. Seems very possible. Um, definitely them pushing the photoreal agenda to its its most kind of disturbing degree. Actually, that's not true. Blue Umbrella was the most disturbing photoreal Pixar short, where the very realistic umbrellas getting rained on were falling in love with each other. Um, very <laughs> glad to see Luca get, or to see Pixar getting away from their recent trends of inanimate objects falling in love with each other or inanimate objects looking very real and doing things. This is about two boys. Uh, they are sea monsters, uh, but they're like 13 years old <laughs> and they swim around Italy and they decide, what if they go to land? And when they go to land, they turn into real boys. It's um, kind it's of a, a Ponyo situation. It's kind splash of a little- situation. Splash, I guess. Yeah, that's true. She was a mermaid and she gets out and she walks around. Anyway, these boys love life. I mean, they are kind of uh, spinning in circles down in the ocean. Their parents, I mean, the one kid voiced by Jacob Tremblay, my son, um, he, he <laughs> is stuck. He doesn't know what to do with his life. His parents are kind of overbearing and they want to send him when he first goes to land. They want to send him to the depths of the ocean um, and really lock him away with his uncle who is played in one scene by Sasha Baron Cohen as uncle. In two uncle. scenes. Two oh scenes yes. There's a post-credit the, scene. Uh, the post-credit scene. <laughs> uh, he is a wonderful addition to this movie. He just seems to make up all of his lines and it is a joy. Um, but yeah, so Luca voiced by Jacob Tremblay and Alberto voiced by Jack Dylan Grazer, who I believe was the kid from um, Shazam. Uh, they and go- more, more, Pertinently, I would say even the kid from We Are Who We Are, the Luca Guadagnino show shot in Italy. Ah, yeah, that is a better reference, although no one watched that except you. So that's the problem. Uh, It was tremendous. And we probably Uh, talked about it on the show at some point. So they venture off to an Italian city called Porto Rosso, which I'm going to assume is a Porco Rosso reference. Probably not. But okay, so this this is controversial. This is controversial. DNA. So, yeah, (laughs) this is controversial. I learned on the Internet when tweeting repeatedly about the Studio Ghibli nods into Porco Rosso in particular, which is one of my favorite Miyazaki movies. Um, There is apparently a place along the Adriatic Sea called Porto Rosso. However, I feel like common sense would suggest the sort of Occam's razor approach to this, that the reference is so obviously inclined. And, and of course, like, you know, I think Porco Rosso as a title for Miyazaki's movie may have initially been a pun on the real place. That makes sense. And so now we're sort of coming full circle because I would not believe anyone who told me with a straight face that this, the name of the town in this movie was not a reference back to Miyazaki, but maybe it's just closing the loop. So Everyone's referencing someone. Uh, but there's a lot of Ghibli DNA, uh, the spirit of Miyazaki in this movie. There's a lot of the spirits, I think, of, of Ardman animation and stop motion. The character designs are, are much more cartoonish. And I, that's not a pejorative. That's just a style. It's like very exaggerated in some ways. It's, it's vivid and, and it's getting away from this photoreal trend that Pixar has been going toward. I mean, especially with soul, we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about soul and, and kind of, well, some of us thought it was a little stale to, to see them just like recreate New York uh, in, a, in a mirror image um, and not really stretch their imaginations with the animation. Luca, I think is a totally different direction for them and was happy to see it. But David, here's what I want to throw to you. This is the story of yeah. two boys. They're just having fun in Italy. They meet a girl. It's not a romantic thing. It's just now three friends and they want to re- win a big race. They want to beat 
a bad, a mean kid. Um, and that's pretty much the whole movie. His parents are looking for him a little bit and they're running around, but they're really discovering like what friendship means and what living life is all about in their teen perspective. I've seen a lot of people say that this is minor Pixar. What is, and I don't really know what that always means to people. Do you think Luca is minor Pixar? Do you think you can understand why someone would have this reaction to Luca? Do you think Luca is minor Pixar? Uh, even though on this podcast you have previously stated, fuck CG animation, it's the worst thing that's ever happened. <laughs> uh, I'll put that asterisk on everything. But what do you think about Luca? Is it minor? Well, a lot to chew on there. Um, you know, Luca is the, by my estimation, and people were up in my mentions about this, but uh, it, it is, by my estimation, the shortest Pixar movie since Toy Story. I believe without credits, it runs roughly 84 minutes. The credits are quite long. I think there's a lot of streaming uh, business because, again, this is directed Disney Plus release that is added on the back end that was, uh, makes the credits even longer than their theatrical releases. Um, so, you know, and, and then you combine that with the scale of the story, um, the Disney plus of it all. And you have a recipe for something that seems like minor Pixar, you, you know, it's a movie as Patches was saying about friendship. I mean, it does have the heightened reality. Uh, it does have the, you know, why is this an animated movie essence of, of the, the sort of literal fish, fish monster out of water. You know, I, I the characters, particularly Jack Dylan Grazer's character, who is, well, right, Italian still gives me like a shape of water with a Jufro vibes, even though his hair is not quite a Jufro. There is, there is, listen, I'm allowed to, you to need go down to see this what road. you need to see in and, the movies. That's important. And I'm going to say that, uh, that Jacob Tremblay's character certainly gave me Jewish vibes. I can't, I mean, maybe it's because his parents are so neurotic um, and all, and they're, like they're all sort of adhering to the uh, Albert Brooks from Finding Nemo template. But uh, even though this was all about uh, olive-skinned people living in the Mediterranean, it definitely seemed Jewish in a way. Um, <laughs> but now we're off totally off track. But uh, the um, yeah, I mean, it, it is a story that I think the, the Ghibli vibes obviously extend beyond the Porco Rosso of it all. It does feel like it is not about you know what is a soul or like what if toys were alive or whatever fucking bullshit. Pixar is usually doing it. It doesn't feel like it's quite swinging for the fences like that. It is telling a pared down story about three friends. Um, really, the the stakes of the movie are: are they going to win this local triathlon, which of course uh, is not swimming, biking, and eating, but swimming, biking. Oh, sorry, no, not swimming, biking, and running, but swimming, biking, and eating. Um, the uh, the third leg being just like scarfing mouthful of pasta, um, and that is really as big as the stakes. Yet, uh, there is a constant threat of danger in terms of if water splashes on these boys, they will reveal that they are the sea monsters that the local people have there are, been There is some real hunting. tension in that conceit. There's a lot of fountains in Porto Rosso. Uh, <laughs> sure they, are. They spritz. They spritz. Uh, they do indeed. Um, and, you know, I, I think I compared this movie to a spritz in my review in that it is that sort of refreshing late summer vibe, uh, afternoon vibe to it. Uh, but, you know, all the things that make it maybe smaller Pixar that make it uh, more contained, certainly less, I don't know, for the, it's not a Pete doctor. It's not, um, it's not the kind of movie that even before COVID was looking at billion dollar grosses uh, are what make it so pleasurable for me. I mean, that it is able to work in a register that we more closely associate with Studio Ghibli movies um, that have 
a focus on human emotions that are not anthropomorphizing everything to make everything just like such a one-to-one corollary of what it's meant to represent the Pete Doctor problem. Um, they are uh, really sort of in just like there are whole stretches of this relatively short movie uh, where it's just the boys playing in a montage, building a bike, having fun, getting in touch with like the idea of not living in fear. I mean, that really is sort of the overriding theme in this movie. These boys learning to uh, not let them, their fear stop them from being who they are and embracing the world and exploring it. And that makes it very easy to extrapolate a sort of queer subtext from it, which people are want to do. Um, and are welcome to. I do think that the Luca Quadagnino call me by your name uh, in the air of it uh, makes that even easier. But um, I, I, I don't. Uh, I, you know, the movie the movie gives you enough rope if if you want to go down that road. But um, the lack of a you know, it's really about the bond between these three kids. I mean, like the lack of a driving romantic plot in more explicit terms allows it to remain in that sort of low key register. Uh, the parents are stuck in like a TVB plot. Um, which is not a positive for the movie, but does... Um, I don't know. If does, they're funny. It's cute. Oh, no, it's really cute. Uh, Maya, Maya Rudolph and Jim Gaffigan both... I mean, Maya Rudolph has become, between this and uh, Mitchell's Mitchell Machines, Machines. Yeah, it's it's like so really strange. the go-to animated movie mom right now. Um, and Jim Gaffigan is a great foil for her. And they spend the whole movie just like trying to pour water on <laughs> random kids in this village and see on, if one of them hysterical. is their son. It's very cute, but the, the fact that it it literally plays like a, B, a sitcom B-plot um, just shows the... But I think I think, that it's, it's, I think it's that's part a of the Ghibli bit. DNA, too. I mean, one thing I was going to say is, what a refreshing uh, change of pace for Pixar to also have a movie about, like, young kids and, and silly... I mean, have a silly movie. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else. Maybe Coco has a young kid in the lead, but I had the pleasure of watching this movie with my three-year-old daughter, and she loved it. And I expected her to because she loves Totoro, she loves Ponyo, and she loves Kiki's Delivery Service. And there are just not animated movies with young kids in them, or movies that have that where the kids scan younger and act younger, um, and with silly parents too i think that that plays into like this movie is for younger kids but it's not like knockoff pixar it's not planes or something um it is really it is, a well-polished it is categorically movie for younger kids i mean i i not only is it not planes which was not a <laughs> pixar movie but sort of affected the look of one but uh it and spun off from a pixar universe uh i think this is higher echelon pixar i mean it's smallness can be deceiving but i think because of you know, it, well, that's it, that's what I'm Pixar's, I the find that Pixar's. Stuff. I find the thing that Pixar is sort of celebrated for this uh, pathological obsession with story to be really suffocating. I think that there is something a little bit too airtight about their something algorithmic almost or, or yeah. robotic about their approach to storytelling. There's no sense of humanity in there, and I find it especially oppressive in the stories that are trying to get to the heart of what humanity is to begin with. The things like soul and inside out i mean i liked up but pete doctor is really not my cup of tea and uh the and then you know even even for the delights that are to be found in something like toy story 4 the magic is the bloom is sort of off the rose and uh you know the idea of the making like a buzz Lightyear origin story next year i'm already a bit sick of it um and uh, although domi's ready to see Lightyear. year don't don't film uh she made bow I believe, right? 
Um, uh, yeah, Dumb Machine did make Val. And her movie, yeah, called Turning Red, does look like it has a lot oh, yeah. of potential to be cute and fun, clever. But um, the fact that this movie feels, you know, maybe maybe this does go counter to the point that I was making. I mean, there is something a little contained about the the parents, like a little too tidy, a little bit too, they're off on their own their own thing. Uh, but then there is a sort of adolescent messiness to it. I mean, they're all sort of growing up. They're all on their, this is really that one last beautiful summer, the summer that is idyllic. And they always remember with them and it really sort of captures a vibe that reminded me of like off brand. Well, like all, not Miyazaki Pixar, like not, it's not quite turning at that level, but also like the movies that are a little bit more about a vibe. I mean, there is a sort of like seaside town, obviously the Mediterranean element of Porco Rosso, this sort of seaside relaxed vibe of Kiki's delivery service, but the movie that came to mind more than any of those was something like uh, from up on Poppy Hill, which uh, I believe is a Goro Miyazaki joint. Yes, it is. Um, and really it's just sort of <laughs> about the, uh, really about the sort of like the halcyon days, this nostalgic vibe. And there is just more room for the light to get in, in a way for the, for the vitality of these characters and the world they inhabit and to sort of, even in its 84 minute duration to sort of, sit back and, and let it wash over you and not feel like you're just cross or connecting the dots between two points that have been mathematically mapped within an inch of their lives. Um, and for me, that is, that is just a much more pleasant thing to sit back and enjoy and sort of surrender to than a lot of Pixar's other yeah. stuff. It's not as manic as a lot of CGI uh, American animation, even, you know, something like Mitchell's for machines worked for me. A lot of the, um, a lot of the uh, Lord Miller stuff does because they use that mania to their advantage, but that's sort of the exception to the rule. Um, but yeah, I just like, I just had a really, really enjoyable time. Did you like the score? Did and, you like Dan Romer's score? Okay. So that's movie, a, which like, I think does a lot is, of uh, lifting. The thing is that like from the first plucks of Dan Romer's score, you can tell two things. One <laughs> it's uh, was written by Dan Romer. I mean, I'm talking about within, I would say you can name that, that composer within two notes. It's got some um, piece of the Southern wild <laughs> DNA, DNA for sure. I mean, the guy, the guy has a thing and he does it yes. well and he uh, doesn't wander too far afield from that, but I haven't heard all of the, he hasn't recorded all, as many film scores as I'd imagined, but um, he, and from my, from what I've heard, he doesn't wander too far afield from that all that often. But uh, so one, you can instantly tell it's Dan Romer score and two, it instantly feels very different from everything that Pixar has made yeah. before. Um, which generally have these really genial, more generic scores. I mean, and even the what Trent Rosner, Trent Ross, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross brought to um, brought to Soul. I just it never really stood out for me. Um, even you know there there are the moments when they the jazz takes the four, and of course you, the music is center stage. Then, but it, this is really you know again like a couple notes, and you're just okay. We're doing something a little bit different. And it does work in the same way for that same like coming of age uh, momentum that he was able to bring to both Beast of the Southern Wild and I suppose to a lesser extent Wendy. Um, so yeah, it did it did work for me. I especially just liked it for sort of jostling me out of my expectations. Uh, mileage may vary, but for a jaded Pixar viewer like myself who was watching this for work, uh, there. It was. It's hard to overstate just how effective it was at getting me to sort of adjust my posture at the start. Yeah, and I think all of the elements of the movie do that. I, um, I was after I watched Luca. I read an interview that we did with uh, Enrico on Polygon, and he mentioned something. This kind of echoes what you were saying, David. Where 
he thinks that Pixar actually doesn't have a real reputation for visuals, that they are so story driven that, you know, their visuals are always like complementing whatever ideas they're bringing to the table story wise. And it's always story, story, story. And here it was really about like pushing them into a space where this has a visual stamp, like this has a visual identity. This has ideas visually. Um, and I really felt it. And it might be it might be minor. I watch it at home on on Disney Plus, but I don't know. I'll, I will watch this movie again the same way I watch the Ghibli movies or the Leica movies. The Leica movies really feel small scale there too. I don't know if there's a major Leica movie. Kubo perhaps is epically sized, but even then, like the action is pretty small. And I, I just think minor is uh, something I look for in animated movies because these days animated movies have to be so major. Um, yeah, I, was really I mean the thing about the vacation. the thing about the Leica movies, some of which did up for you know more traditionally epic stories, is that the Herculean labor involved in bringing them to life never allowed them to feel small because you can just feel the sweat equity that's sort of in every frame, um, and that isn't necessarily the case with Pixar. I did really appreciate. I think this is complementing what what Patches said. I did really appreciate that they uh, went against a more plastic and perfect look in this movie there is uh, a sense of um imperfection just to, to the way the characters are it does feel more tactile it does feel like if you squint these could be puppets um and uh yeah they're just everything isn't as smooth as it usually and as rounded as it usually is in pixar movies although i will say a pet peeve of mine i've noticed and luca really brought this home as i was waiting for the uh the after credit scene that I did not know was there and was very pleasantly surprised to find is exactly what I could only have hoped it would be, um, is that Pixar movies tend to, and all these CGI movies tend to use in the closing credits, the sketches, like the hand-drawn sketches of the characters they don't that they it. made in the production. And it's like, it, there's like, look, look at how beautiful uh, this movie could have been <laughs> every time. It's like, you know, if only there were some possible way that we could have made a movie that exuded this much personality with every frame up oh, too bad. It's impossible. I guess it's perverse. Um, <laughs> I just don't understand. You're more uh, of a, you're understand. more of a, the art of Pixar guy than Pixar itself. I, I suppose. Um, oh, yeah, oh yeah. My apartment is just wall to wall art of Pixar. <laughs> Yeah, you can't even like walk through here. There's towers. Uh, just you have to own eight coffee tables just to fit all these books on them. Uh, Luca, it's a Alton Disney pure right now. Is that Italian? Get sure. And if the beat live, you know Lil Juke made it. Hands on my knees, shaking ass on my thigh shit. Post me a pic, finna make me a profit. When the liquor hit, then the bitch get toxic. Why the fuck you in the club with niggas wild? I've been listening since brunch, that shit. Order 42 for the table, let's pop Little it. things that we're missing. Are there little things that we're missing these days? There's so much content. There, there, uh, I have never felt like I was more behind on my new releases. Um, and as, you know, especially over the first six months of this year, have never felt less compelled to go and close those gaps. But with Cannes coming up and, and the say, movies... You've been to like eight film festivals already this year. How, I, you, I how are not, you behind? I have not been to a single film festival. True. But uh, with, the, with, the, with the threat, the promise, the hope of movies, you know, groaning back to life uh, and, and hopefully, you know, between the box office ignition that F9 hopefully brings to the States... 
and the just in the excitement of Cannes and the sudden overload of auteur-driven movies, hopefully feel like the movies are coming back, I felt like reinvigorated to go and seek out the movies that I've been meaning to watch. Uh, and one of them, I, I watched actually two in the past 48 hours. Uh, the first was Chaitanya Tamhane's The Disciple. He made a film a few years ago uh, that was called, uh, fuck, why is it escaping me right now? It was called Court. Uh, and um, he was then mentored by Alfonso Cuaron, and he came back with this movie that was at Venice last year called The, Dis- the Disciple. And it is a film that is broadly, I mean, just, just as a helpful comp, uh, similar in its story and its focus in a semi-talented musician who uh, is, is sort of pushing a boulder uphill, even when it increasingly seems like he's not going to make it. Uh, as Eden, the Mia Hansen love movie that was about EDM. Um, The Disciple is set in the world of Indian classical music, and it stars a guy named Aditya Modak as um, a a guy who's been raised to be obsessed with Indian classical music. Uh, His father drilled it into him, sort of uncompromising about it, and had his own history in the genre and the practice. Uh, He reveres his guru, um, who he performs with, but no matter what he does, it always seems like he is just not quite good. He's like in that horrible middle space of mediocrity where I think so many of us, myself probably very much included, spend our lives. Yeah, like our podcast. (laughs) Right, um, where he is sort of good enough to get off the ground and be tantalizingly close to his dream, but not quite good enough to achieve it. And that leads to this sort of suspended state of paralysis um, because there's not a strong enough headwind one way or the other to to go and, and recommit his life or, you know, get the breakthrough that he needs. And it's sort of about a, a long period in his life of, of the trials and tribulations and uh, of pushing through it. And he is sort of calm slash haunted by these secret recordings of a guru that his father revered. Um, and in the second half of the movie, he follows this uh, female Indian classic musician who, gets a spot on the Indian equivalent of American Idol or whatever Indian equivalent of it is that entertains classical music, although she then gets away from her discipline and sort of sells out, in a sense, to the pop uh, establishment as it exists in, in Bollywood and whatnot. And he sort of scornfully watches her ascent from afar um, and sort of reckons with if he's going to be in this sort of holding pattern for the rest of his life or if he's going to be able to break out of it and um, find some other value maybe adjacent to classical music. and. It's done in a very meticulous uh, way that is a, is a bit glacially paced. You know, almost every scene is filmed in one locked off wide shot uh, in a way that I found rather entrancing and, and really harmonious with the music that we hear throughout, you know, almost wall to wall throughout the entire film. Um, I think if you're able to sort of surrender to the story that it's telling and uh, get in sort of sync with this, with this character who is not entirely appealing. I mean, he's a very, uh, he's a very, layered and and uh, you know not overly sympathetic character but not loathsome either i mean he is he is just a desperate ambitious guy and you feel for him and uh, are put off inside lewin davisy or uh i yeah i mean and i mean that that's probably also a helpful comp um yeah i i it is sort of along those lines but this i think has a slightly like a more sanguine and sage edge to it where it's there is some sort of like wisdom on the side of it it's not quite as as bitter and 
and bruising as Inside right. Davis can be. Um, few films are. Uh, and it's on Netflix. Netflix bought it. Netflix distributed it in the United States. It's been there uh, since April 30th. It is, uh, if any of what I just said sounds appealing, it is well with your time. Something interesting about the discipline um, that I just wanted to bring up. It's a little... Or the sorry, the, I, the I may have called it the discipline also, no, no. and so I'm just correct. That, that is my bad. Um, the disciple. Uh, this is a bit of inside baseball, but I think it's interesting, and our listeners would would care to know this, which is uh, Netflix buys a lot of international films and then dumps them on the platform with it, no fanfare. That you would never hear about them unless we talked about them on the podcast oh, or you read or you follow people. Now, but, now hold on. When The Disciple hit Netflix, I saw a lot of people being like, one of the best movies of the year just went on this platform and no one talked about it. No one knew. And then like the week after, in Netflix's defense, I have to say, they have now started sending like a weekly or or biweekly email to press to say, here are the foreign movies that are coming to the platform. (laughs) Here's five movies coming. And I'm like, wow, you're really you're going at someone has to do the work now to like highlight these movies and thank God they do. But uh, when people yell and scream on net on Twitter at Netflix, uh, sometimes that, that works. There is a little bit of a history here. Some of this may have been uh, litigated on this podcast in the past, but Netflix got some low black, some blowback last year when a Taiwanese film called a son was listed by a variety critic, Peter DeBruge as the number one film of the year in variety on his list. And part of his recommendation, part of his little blurb celebrating the movie was a screed against the fact that Netflix hadn't really done a good job of letting anyone know that it existed, that they had the rights that it was exclusively available on Netflix for 11 months at that point. And I then you know, wrote another article celebrating the movie to the same effect, because uh, I did agree that it was really strong and um, was sort of a gas that it completely slipped by me, even though it's my job to keep track of some movies. I mean, now more than ever, it's simply impossible to follow them all and things slip through the cracks. But uh, Netflix, you know, to their credit, I think they were backtracking a little bit, but they, and like trying to do damage control, but they were pretty quick up in my inbox being like, Hey, this isn't fair. We're trying to do our best here. And they have made real, you know, there's only so much slack I was able to give them because everything that Peter said in his article was true, but they have made a real and a clear and enduring effort this year to, as Patches was saying, to correct that and to make sure that people, at least in our sphere, if not in the general public, I mean, it is sort of our job to help amplify that message when we so choose. <laughs> it's um, now the press has to, to ignore so. them because there's a billion things that people want but, to talk yeah, about. I mean, there, there are a, a lot of, a lot of uh, there are there are too many movies that Netflix acquires from around the world to watch. And, um, you know, it, it stands to reason that the press are going to pay more attention to the ones that have been vetted by film festivals and aren't premiering you know, directly from foreign distributors, but, you know, played at Venice or Cannes or wherever. Um, but they are, as those higher profile films continue to come out on, on Netflix, they are going to continue to make an effort to make sure that we know about them and hopefully not have a repeat of the a Sun situation. The fact that I had not seen The Disciple until this weekend was my fault and not Netflix's because I was well aware of the fact that it was there, even if I didn't know that until about a week or two before it premiered on the service. Um, and this is going to be an enduring problem across all streaming platforms, even ones that have a much smaller library and a much narrower focus Yeah, this is why infinite keeps going overlooked on paramount plus of course no but there's a there's a movie coming up on um you know movie does an excellent job of of you know proselytizing about the films that they have 
Um, and sometimes they one really, day or? they do, they do, but it's still 30, 31 movies True. a month. But, um, you know, I, I just learned and I learned this because movie alerted my, me to it. So they're doing their job. But um, I just learned that a really excellent movie that was supposed to premiere at Cannes last year. Um, it was part of that like Cannes branded group is going to be exclusively premiering on movie early in July. It's called Nadia Butterfly. And it it's a very it's, it's like imagine uh, a movie about an Olympic swimmer meets lost in translation like that kind of vibe it is set in the non-existent 2020 tokyo olympics um <laughs> it is about a uh which is really fascinating to watch because it was shot in 2019 with the you know obvious understanding that there was going to be the olympics in 2020 and that never came to pass but uh um now i guess it'll be less surreal now that they're going to happen in 2021 but um and it's just about sort of a a night in or a night or two in, in the life of an Olympic swimmer from France who's there or from, I think she's from, uh, she's from Canada, French speaking Canada and um, from Quebec and, or Montreal. I can't, I can't remember. I saw this movie a year ago, but she uh, is there with her team and she's just sort of like coming to grips with her future in the sport and um, a potentially abusive relationship with her coach. And it really has strong uh, lost translation vibes, but is very much in tune and in really fascinating ways with the life and um, and the habits and rhythms of an Olympic swimmer. Uh, it is well, well worth seeing. It's called Nadia Butterfly. It's going to be on Mubi. So that's in the, in the early July. If you subscribe to Mubi, if you don't, you should uh, keep an eye out for that. All right, for our final segment tonight, we're going to talk about something that I know is near and dear to Dave's heart, and I've been anxious to talk about it with him because, one, I'm not sure anyone's watching it, so I want to make sure people eventually do and make time for this, but it is Sweet Tooth, the new TV series on Netflix. The first thing I've probably enjoyed on Netflix in months and months. Uh, I just don't find a lot that I like on that platform anymore. And so I'll occasionally watch. I get all the screeners. There's so, as we mentioned in the last segment, so many things coming to Netflix every day, every week, every month. Um, finally, you know, I knew Sweet Tooth, the comic book by Jeff Lemire, because Dave recommended Sweet Tooth to me and gave me his copies. And I might still have them in my basement. Sorry, Dave. I never. That's okay. I'm on. I'm on the digital kick now. It's okay, good. You don't need hard copies, graphic novels, and such collections of these books. Um, well, I bought them, which is the important thing, and then I bought them again, which is another important thing. If you really like you're a good property. consumer, you're yeah. a good hashtag fan. Yeah. Um. But yes, Jeff's. How would you describe? Let's before we talk about Sweet Tooth, the show, which is a big, budgeted, polished post-apocalyptic adventure across America. Let's mm-hmm. talk about Sweet Tooth, the comic for a second because they're very different and i think it'll be important to i think you would recommend jeff's comic as well but maybe for different reasons than the show or what what do you what do you why did you get into the comic how did that Uh, the the original sweet tooth comic is part of that apocalyptic genre that we got some of in the first decade of the 2000s which is man and a boy on a trip in the apocalypse 
And, you know, you kind of can't go wrong with that from a certain The road, angle. but with antlers. Exactly. Yeah, the twist is the uh, lead in Sweet Tooth is a boy named Gus who is part deer, part boy, because we're living in a post-apocalypse where not only has your, you know, traditional virus, your Captain Trips or whatnot, killed off most of the human population, but at the same time the virus showed up, also um, people started giving birth to hybrid animal-human children that are called hybrids. And uh, I'm assuming that's related to the virus somehow and not just a coincidence. Uh, well, this is a big part of the story. Yes. So uh, it starts happening just at the same time, both in the comic book and on the TV show, which causes not only normal, you know, race based discrimination against these poor hybrids, but, you know, the idea that maybe they did cause the virus. So maybe we should hunt them yeah, all. Your down question, all. David, is at the heart of the hatred that's running through America's veins in this uh, show. So. Congratulations, you would be one of the bad guys. So in the comic and in the show, while we're still (laughs) talking about similarities, uh, Sweet Gus is raised. Gus is the titular Sweet Tooth because he likes candy bars. He's uh, raised by his father or a person he calls his father in isolation in um, a forest and is told never to cross a fence. Eventually the father dies and he has to venture off past the fence and he teams up with a wandering man he calls the big man. And uh, they set off uh, across uh, uh, across the nation uh, for various purposes. They have changed for the show and the comic, sort of why they initially set off and what everybody's goals are. But that why do they set off? The why do they set off in the comic? Remind me about about that. What are they trying to do? Uh, Jeopard has a plan to double cross Sweet Tooth right from the beginning, which I oh, think okay. they've lifted. Uh, from this series, or at least they're they're not going to do it immediately because this series has the benefit of uh, being written and produced after the entirety of the comic book run was finished. Sweet Tooth is done. There's even a reboot called Sweet Tooth The Return that has a whole bunch of Twin Peaks vibes uh, intentionally. Read about but, that on Polygon from Dave. You yeah. wrote about it. Uh, but because I think it was able to, you know, know the whole story before it set out, like hopefully, knock on wood, the Why the Last Man TV series when we eventually get to see oh it. Oh my god is it allows the show to get wider, faster, and world-build more efficiently, um, which is uh, making some, I think, really good choices. Uh, They've definitely slowed down how much time you spend with the hybrids uh, versus the comic book, uh, which is, I think, a benefit of it being the first season of a Netflix show. I foresee the second season of this show getting slightly higher budgeted to include more hybrid children yeah based on the i mean we'll, we're gonna do a spoiler section to this where we we get get into it more but I, the back half of the season we get a few more hybrids and it definitely is like are they all gonna team up and be like a gang in the, fu- in the future <laughs> a gang of, of hybrids a gang of hybrids but basically a lot of the visual effects hybrid wise um are done on our lead gus uh who doesn't have real ears he has deer ears and handlers and then on a lot of different uh, babies, which is a slightly more forgiving in like anatomy. Later, when we get to see some of the child hybrids, I'm like, ah, I mean, yeah, it's just. Wait, one what of the do you things- mean? What is that criticism? Is that of the effects work, or is that of the designs, or is that of the? Like, it's how um, hybridish they are. I got so used to seeing all of these characters in Jeff Lemire's very obvious illustration style. That watching them go one to one adapted feels weird to me right now. Interesting, uh, yeah, because uh, that's yeah. one thing I wanted to flag with with you being a comic reader is that Jeff's illustration style is so like jagged and uh, unique, and this 
show departs from the visual style of the comic in a pretty significant way. I would I would think it's this yeah. one is like, um, you know, this was directed by Jim Mickle, who has done a lot of horror movies and gritty stuff like Stakeland, What We Are, What We Are, Cold in July. I was not expecting this to have this kind of like Amblin feel. They shot it in New Zealand, so it's like really verdant and uh, New Zealand for Colorado. And, Gotta love it. Yeah, I do love it. I mean, I love being in the woods and I love how it's overgrown in a real way. Um, and it, but it's such a departure and, and it works for the show, which I do think has a warmer tone. Um, I mean, one major departure is that Will Forte plays his dad in the beginning. The first episode is really interesting. It's like a, it's a true pilot. Uh, the backstory there is that Jim Mickle wrote and directed this pilot for Hulu. And then Hulu was like, uh, take a hike. We don't get it. And then they brought that pilot to Netflix because Netflix doesn't do pilots and that sort of thing. So uh, maybe one reason I like the show is because it was conceived outside the Netflix machine. It, it was done. Allowed to do it was done the correct way of television. Yeah. And then pilot. they brought Jim brought on um, Beth Schwartz, who had worked on the Arrowverse shows, and they've kind of like turned it into a series. But this first pilot episode is it's like a movie. It's it's. Gus, um, who plays Gus? What's that kid's name? Eh, he's just a kid. We wouldn't know him. Uh, but it's uh, him Christian Fo- Convery. Yeah. Oh, Con- um, should have gotten Jacob Tremblay. That's okay. But uh, <laughs> Will Forte plays the dad, and he's you know a little unhinged. He is living in Yellowstone National Park or something off the mm-hmm. grid, and uh, but he's a warm, loving father. He's trying to protect Gus in the comic. He's like a religious fanatic, right? Yes. He is a really dark character, and they they get rid of that aspect of him. And I think that makes sense. It, there's a, there'd be so much darkness to this show that I think over the last ten plus years since the comic came out, we we don't have a taste for that. I don't anymore. I just like I don't need to see the road again. I don't need to see Walking Dead, just the dreariness of post apocalypse over and over again. I want to see a different vision of the future. Even when I mean, this show gets dark. There, the whole virus plotline plays out in kind of parallel. There is a doctor character, um, Doctor Singh, played by Adil Akhtar, and um, who's in like that, a, a nightmare Pleasantville. Scenario. Yeah, he's in the suburbs still. Like, there's still a functional society, which I find fascinating. And he is trying to find a cure. But everyone, it's amazing. This show was obviously conceived before the pandemic, but shot during the pandemic. And with a viral outbreak, there's a lot of people wearing masks and like testing each other's temperatures. And when someone gets the virus in their nice suburban walled off town, they uh, do something horrific, which I won't spoil because the scene is a true horror movie nightmare that Jim Mickle is perfect to execute. Um, But it is just a terrifying vision. But juxtaposed with like the sweetness of Gus and Jeopard's journey, um, I was really relieved to see them depart from the bleakness of the comic at times uh it's it's such a different version of post-apocalypse yeah i think they did a really smart thing in reorienting it because the uh, sweet tooth the comic really leans into the things about being a comic which is you could focus on somebody's perspective but it's like best done on like a one-off situation uh, you could, you know, have a narrator that could fill in a lot of gaps for you in case your illustrations aren't really clear. This keeps the narrator, which might be the one thing I would want to get rid of from this show because the show doesn't. Yeah, the show doesn't need it. Um, it I get it. Why doing? It? I mean, there's a fairy tale vibe to this. There's like a tall tale vibe. Um, yes. So you maybe maybe you want the narrator to kind of 
give this otherworldly feeling to the all the but drama. I, but definitely I almost want it. it like I almost if I had the narrative, I want it to be a kid because this is so mm. reoriented around uh, sort of like we were talking about the lightning round question. The idea of like building your own family out of the ashes, inherent kindness, uh, if that's going to be left in the people, you know, after a mass, uh, you know, virus event. I really like the non um, plot based elements of Sweet Tooth. They feel a little episodic, but it is a TV show. So I'm kind of into it. It's like, here's the here's the time that's what I love hold- about it. Here's we're held out in like a cabin. We're like on a train. Yes, yes. We this like is something I hear. love about it that feels like we've gone so far away from this type of storytelling where it's like exactly what you said, like this episode, we're going into the town and we're exploring a town and now we're, we're doing the, the episode in the cabin and we're doing the episode where we're going to follow another set of characters or do a flashback episode. It's like, it truly is episodic adventure of the week, even though you can, I, you can binge them. Um, yeah. Well, I'm, and, I'm fairly sure you're going to binge a lot of this show because it I is, definitely did. it is the, uh, that, thing you were kind of describing where it's like it's definitely a show that i would describe as like a family show like if you have young teenage boys and young teenage girls i think they're going to see things that they recognize uh in the show especially post-pandemic i would imagine this is the uh, most I, amblin-esque like all of the colin trevoros of the world grasping to try and recreate the kind of scary but still for safe for kids 80s vibe like jim mickle has done it the best by not being retro about it at all but just like capturing the magic of doing practical like i think the practical effects of of gus's antlers and his ears always twitching around like all that stuff plussed up with visual effects looks so amazing or just like doing some of the horrific stuff i was describing with the the people who are fearing the virus there's also uh, a whole faction of people who want to capture the hybrids because well they hate the hybrids or they think there might be a solution to the virus there and like those guys are they're almost on the edge of parody like they look like they could be in mad max world or you know in mad max in the well, mad max movies the when they're on the like precipice of being post-apocalyptic but we're still driving cop cars and like going to the grocery store uh it's like it's almost that level of uh, the bad guy in this who's like wearing big dr robotnik glasses and being like get out of here yeah um, no no i mean i like all that because this it, it made the show also be like lightly about gender. It took gender as a theme, whereas in Sweet Tooth the comic, one of the first things they do is like rescue some women from like a sexual slavery because it's an adult story and that's what happens. And Sweet Tooth is like, oh my god, the world's evil. Uh, this one, it's almost like the those evil people are called the Last Men. The main male character that isn't Will Forte used to be a Last Man, but has reformed himself. But the sort of idea that just like the men are inherently evil, it's the guy, you know, it's the guy, it's the guys they run across on their trip that are giving the side eye to uh, Gus and his traveling partner. The women seem to be at least be like nominally more interested in helping. And that's not as present at the beginning of the comic book because it needs to be this solitary uh, two characters on a journey thing. But that's something I think the TV show really brings to the fore. And you know spoiler light spoiler alert the last men aren't gone by the end of the first season and so if it's anything like the comics we'll also uh delve into them like that's a whole other problem Mm. to explore but i like i really like how this started off i was a little worried uh in like episodes two and three uh where they run across the animal army which is not in 
the comic books that maybe they were just going to fully depart. But I really like how that new character got folded in. Yeah, I think she adds she complicates the story in, in a necessary way, not to just have like a female voice on their adventure, but to her connections to various characters and, and her plight of like losing people. Everyone's lost something. And we all, we, by the end of the season, we get a taste of how everyone has felt loss in their life. And um, I think it's, it's necessary. Uh, You know, uh, the type of family that they lose and why they lose it. It's all complex. I think we're kind of dancing around. Let's talk a little about spoilers because I think one surprising aspect of this show to me is that I watched more than four episodes. I really (laughs) have not made it to the end of a Netflix show in ages. I just get really bored. Maybe the crown is the only other thing that I've, I've made it to the end of. Well, this one's only Um, eight episodes, so it doesn't have the Netflix lag that was from the early shows where like in the middle of the season you're like what are we doing maybe that's also because it has the episodic structure where it's like we're not on one subplot long enough for me to feel like a drag in the middle it's not a big movie or something right like maybe the train episode drags but there are things i like about the train episodes because i've read the comics so you know it kind of goes it goes either way what did you think about how this uh series wrapped up and where it wrapped up I mean, I uh, I was really invested in the characters. I just think that's a surprising thing to say. Again, with with a show, I haven't felt excited to see what happens next uh, very often. And I think everyone is in such a pressurized place um, that I was always interested to see like how they get out of those situations. The Doctor Singh character, especially. So Doctor Singh, as I mentioned, you know, he watches somebody's house get lit on fire or they're they're wrapped in saran wrap and then their house is lit on fire burned Just, alive yeah he has seen some shit and his wife has the virus obviously um and just like how that's gonna play out for them um getting captured by last men and being forced to i will say this dr singh um by the last two episodes has been captured by the last men he's going to they want him to find a cure, and he's told them that he can find one to, in order to save he and his wife's life. Um, he cannot do it. He does not know how, but he knows that the secret is probably, maybe, that you have to do... The answers are in the hybrid kids, and he will kill them to find the cure. I turned it to my wife like while watching it. It sounds like from the few things we get about uh, the the method, because we don't actually see it on screen this season that he actually has to extract things from the pituitary gland while they're alive and in pain. Yes, it sounds absolutely horrific. Um, there's a lot of sharp tools in his laboratory when Gus finally gets captured and driven to where all the other hybrid kids are being kept that he's going to experiment on. I will say this. turned to my wife while we were watching that final episode and was like, I'm sorry, but fuck you. I will not kill kids to save your life or like yeah. save our lives. I'm just not going to do that. I don't know who would. Uh, Dr. Singh, you are fucked up. But I do think have either of you choices seen, is, is fascinating. Have yeah. either of you, I mean, this is, a, this is a scenario that's cropped up in a number of things recently. The Last of Us is obviously the first that comes to mind for me. Uh, but did either of you see a movie called The Girl with All the Gifts? Yes, the zombie-ish movie. British movie. Yeah. I think it's streaming on Amazon just, if people want to watch. It's been on it's been on TV a bit in the last couple of months, and it's a big big recommendation from me. A very Glenn Close of all people is yeah. uh, racked with yeah. a similar <laughs> dilemma, and uh, is. But am is, I wrong? Uh, really you just don't kill kids to beautifully to save 
even the ones you love. I don't know. Well, Am I girl cruel? with all the gifts would certainly agree with that take for very particular reasons having to do with evolution. I think we're going to get there. I'm interested to see if moving around the pieces this early gets us to the same place. Right. By so, the end, we're in Empire Strikes Back, the ending territory. Everyone's in different places, right? Um, right, right. And it's basically where the second volume picks up, I believe, except the one difference that I was hinting at um, is in the series Shepard uh, because it's um, uh, the, he gets the focus of the flashbacks of the finale episode. We learn about him and his wife and that he had a hybrid baby, which is all stuff we don't learn in the first volume of the thing. And he sort of accepts Gus until he's shot, and then Gus is taken from him because Gus made a bad mistake radioing people uh, on the plane. That's how the series ends. In the comic book, Jeopard takes him and just turns him in in exchange for his wife's bones and like walks away and feels guilty. So either way, we end up with Wendy. So they've and... removed his betrayal probably from the series. That's what I'm guessing. And also, it would be what... hard to watch him do that at this point. I don't. I think I feel like we've seen Jeopard wrestle with wanting to be a, a surrogate father for Gus a bunch, even in just this first season. Yeah, I don't know why this would still be a hard decision for him. So I am. Point. I'm interested to see what they do uh, going forward if they are going to end up in the exact same place. So in this series, also the person, the geneticist that made uh, Gus is alive. It is a female, and Gus thinks it's his mom uh, who is living somewhere near Red Rocks, Colorado, in the fictional Essex County, Colorado, because it's been changed from Essex County, Ontario, where Jeff Lemire grew up. Uh, but. She, at the end of the season, is getting a call from Bear because she's gone up to Alaska to investigate where they got the ice sample that can't, uh, got the biology that was eventually Gus. And she has on her wall this poster of like an old-fashioned ship in the ice. I'm wondering if they're going to go... It's the full, terror. I'm wondering if they're going to go full Animal Gods, which is sort of how the comic book like veers off into out-of-apocalypse out of territory. Please speculate more. What does that mean? Uh, so the Gus was cloned from an animal god that was sent to this is the wipe, comic. Yeah, it was sent oh. to wipe out all humans, and he therefore is like the avatar of Mother oh Nature coming back to fight back. But like, there's a lab under the ice with like skeletons of like different animal hybrids. Like, it gets real weird by the end, and they sort of loop back to um, Gus's religious father about how he was kind of right. Uh, that there was like a vengeful animal god. This would be fantastic. But obviously the stuff with the father isn't there. Uh, the mom is alive and active, so she we don't have to go through the ramblings of Mad Dr. Singh, which even though I still think they're going to like draw Mad. So I'm just wondering if we get to the same end because Sweet Tooth the book, the overall message is humanity is a blight. We misuse the earth. We don't get a second chance. This is how we die. The hybrids are here to like replace us. And the only happy ending we get in the comic book is the hybrids decide that instead of mass wiping us out in a genocide just to get over with it, they'll put us in sick beds and let us die while they're like feeding us water. Like peacefully, we get to die in our own way. I w it would be a really fucking hard journey to take, like you're saying, this Avalon-centric series yeah. and end there. Based on this tone, I'm not sure we're going in that direction, but I also don't know. I mean, it. It still has to satisfy. It still has a surprise. Can we, can we wrap this up by talking about crazy things? Can, can we wrap this overlong segment up by talking 
about the one thing that matters. It's only over long to that, you because you didn't it certainly talk is. But, okay. Well, not because I didn't this talk. Happens. Because like I, 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 you know what? I just listened to the entire Flight of the Navigator segment and was wrapped in attention. And uh, I, I can't say the same thing about. I mean, like, the difference tooth, would but, be you've seen um, Flight of the Navigator, right? Exactly. Uh, you need to watch Sweet Tooth, David. This was the I, I, the problem. I may have to watch Sweet Tooth. That certainly seems like the problem. But I think the real problem is that fucking Robert Downey Jr. promoted tweet about how Sweet Tooth was 100 percent Rotten Tomatoes has been haunting my timeline for like a month now. I mean, because <laughs> you haven't forbid, watched it. God forbid <laughs> they make a second season of that show and every critic gives it a pass again. The pain that's, that is what even gives it a pass. That's not even the worst thing. The worst thing they did was put the fake cover on USA Today with the hybrid oh, babies. That, their viral marketing for the show has been out of control, <laughs> terrible. Yeah, they need to. They need to fix Sweet Tooth's marketing. Did you see that video where they took like a hybrid baby out into the streets and were like rolling it around in a in a carriage or in a stroller? I, but I also I thought until until I read one of the reviews, I guess maybe a week before the show came out, I thought that they had finally made. What we've all been waiting for all this time, a show about the twisted metal character, Sweet Tooth, uh, <laughs> the guy who I don't even remember if we ever see the guy. We certainly just see him driving around, ramming people in an ice cream car, an ice cream truck. David, um, what is it like to be a hybrid of a man and a pig? <laughs> <laughs> you, you've trolled. Um, um, you know, sometimes I just fly you know, around. Amy Simons is in the show, yeah, David. Amy Simons plays the mom-ish character. I will tell Doesn't you. Tell you? you I'm not. I'm it. not above telling you that that does. I mean, I'm never going to find the time to watch the show. But that does. In a, in a perfect world, where we had nothing but time. Would move the needle. There is an like episode of the show the where of... Amy Simons and Will Forte are just flirting and having a great date. That episode, Love actually, it. David, that episode is only 35 minutes. It's the shortest it's one of the wonderful. entire season. Um, I cannot watch things out of order, but I take your point. Uh, just like the, after the sort of mentally, I mean, I'm going to watch a new Soderbergh movie either way, but the reviews made it sound like it may not be my speed. The fact that Amy Simons is in no sudden move uh, does help me make that movie a priority. She helps. What can I say? Go watch gonna, her in Sweet Tooth. I'm going to round this up with a little bit and just saying like, this is where we need to go with our comic book adaptations. I'm happy hmm. that it took us a while to get here, but like like 20 years. Like the thing we were trying to do in the 90s where it's like, have all the stars read the comics? Is everybody versed with the comics through the like, oh, let's do like a gritty, like what if these comics people were real, but only in feelings, everything else is fake. All of that stuff was bullshit. This is a good idea. Just treat it like a story and make sure that your adaptation has a core center that it's, it's tweaking the main thing because the main thing exists. The main thing's so good, he's even redoing it as a comic himself. So, like, I'm so glad Sweet Tooth on Netflix found a way to not be the comic and still be interesting. On Netflix now, go watch it, David. All right, that does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. Katie's going to be back next week. I'm going to be gone. But until then... Where are you going? I'm gonna, I got to go uh, guest on the Screen Drafts podcast and tell people what the best legacy sequels going are. on another podcast. Wow. It's to promote That's missing low. our podcast. That's how we get people to know about this podcast. Mm. If they already know about this podcast, they're leaving us a review. They're watching Sweet Tooth. We're doing it all for them. <laughs> We need uh-huh. to we need to help help out the people who you know only listen to screen drafts. They need to listen to fighting. In the oh world. my god! And then I'm going to be gone the week after that. 
Look, it's uh, this is what happens in the summer after a global pandemic. Apparently, we just we we actually roll our vacations. Who knows how? Well, it's... I'm gonna be I'm gonna be at a film festival, but well, and I'm gonna be on another podcast. I'm gonna physically no. be in the exact same space, but you know what I mean. Not important. I guess I'll be here. Yeah. What is yeah. important is where people could find your work online. What are we and talking stuff. about next week? Are we talking about uh, fast, fast, F- fast, F- fast, F- fast, 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 fast? People will probably see that movie. I'm certainly going to see that movie, even though I don't talk about it. We'll, uh, we'll record yeah, tell, your message, and we'll play that. Yeah. One minute tell, take. Tell um, the people who they are. Yes, I am Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon.com. I'm also producing another podcast called Galaxy Brains, hosted by Jonah Ray and Dave Schilling, which I'm really proud of. They're doing Loki this week with Jason Concepcion of Binge Mode, and that's going to be really fun. Um, and we also have backlog episodes. When are we going to talk about Loki? We haven't talked about Loki yet. Um, maybe when it's over, and maybe when David doesn't watch it. Um, <laughs> but if you are interested in our previous conversations, go to fightingintheworm.com. All the old episodes. If you didn't hear, this is our 350-something episode. Or- There's a lot more of Fighting in the Worm to listen to if this is uh, some of your first episodes of fightingtheworm.com. And then there are hundreds of episodes of the same podcast with a different name before that. That's true. Uh, what a bounty of content. I am David Ehrlich. I, you can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich. You can find me writing an IndieWire. I'm, I'm probably not doing all that much at the moment. Uh, oh, Patches, we were going to talk about something else this week. Maybe we can talk about that next week. Although... It was one of those situations where we were going to talk about it to help me flesh out something that I was hoping to write about. Oh, whoops. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll get there. I mean, there, I can say it. I mean, it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> um, but uh, next week is the uh, 20th anniversary of AI, the Steven Spielberg film, uh, which I recently watched for the first time as a parent, um, having seen it on opening weekend and then many times since, but not in the past couple of years. What a trip. Uh so maybe we'll talk about that next week if you we can't make any promises, but maybe. Go, go uh, uh, we, we will not be talking about that next week because our topic right here on our schedule for the 5th of July is oh. AI after being a parent. Oh, wait, David's going to be gone. We'll have to figure this out. <laughs> we, we may have to call an audible there. Yeah, there it's, it goes. Uh, um, I, I'm going to be halfway Planning on the podcast. Um, Love to play the podcast on the podcast. <laughs> people people like people to hear this. Hear. Yeah. They want to see behind the curtain. They want if to they've see watched all of Sweet Tooth and listened to the spoiler section, they this want to hear meta. the podcast. Hey, it's Charlie Kaufman. He's walking <laughs> onto set. Um, <laughs> it's been a movie this whole time. The, uh, what the fuck? Right, so AI, you can find me. I, what the fuck what? else am I writing? I'm mostly in, uh, maybe sketching out a thing piece by pen or reflective essay. Mostly in pre-can mode. So there's not much to see. But you can see all of us. You can see yourself even better. Certainly better than me. On iTunes, if you leave us a review at Fighting in the War Room, we'll read it, read it live on the show. It's a joy. Uh, do it. Do it. Yeah, and I'm Dave Gonzalez. You could find me on DA7E on the Twitter. You could find me on the Storm Lost Rewatch podcast where we're rewatching Lost and coming up on the Screen Drafts podcast with Neil Miller drafting the best legacy sequels, which we've decided are sequels that uh, have were made uh, 10 years after the original, at least. At least, but, but 10 years because if you put in nine years, you get some befores in there and it makes things so much harder. Uh, all right. But you could follow all of us online. You could follow Katie online on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-E-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. 
and all of us online at Fighting in the War Room, F-I-T-W-R. It's an acronym. And there you could tweet at us uh, the answer to this week's lightning round question from your perspective. Does an honor fast nine? What's cinema's most memorable non-biological and non-Toretto family? Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be back again next week. I'm done.